Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. From KUNC and the NPR Network, this is In the NOCO, a daily slice of Northern Colorado news and happenings. It's Friday, December 8th. I'm Erin O'Toole. Longmont author and journalist Stephen Robert Miller is fascinated by climate disaster stories. He says they're often teachable moments. You know, you can, there's so much to be learned from looking in the past, um, environmental histories and histories of instances when people have tried to control nature and ultimately it's failed. In his new book, Over the Seawall, Miller examines the deeper impacts of some of these failures. He investigates how governments and people are using infrastructure to slow or stop the effects or the symptoms of climate change. For example, giant concrete barriers in Japan meant to stop tsunamis, or dams and canals in Arizona meant to to make a desert move in ready for lots of people. In other words, Miller says people are keen to adapt, and that seems great. But it can also be tricky if, if it causes us to rush into rash decisions. Miller joined me to talk about his new book and some of our attempts to adapt to climate change that have ended badly. Your book, Over the Seawall, isn't a collection of solutions to climate change as one might expect. Instead, you talk about this concept of maladaptation, where these infrastructure projects or policies meant to combat climate change fail, or they create this false sense of security, like we've done it, okay, we've dominated nature, so we don't have to change our polluting behavior. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things that I've encountered when I look into the issues with maladaptation. You know, it creates this false sense of security. And in the case studies that I get into and over the seawall, in each one of them, there was somebody along the way who made a comment along the lines of, we've done it, we've fixed the problem, we've made ourselves impregnable to flood, or we've solved this issue, it's over now, we figured it out. And those stories would not be in my book if that was actually true. Sure. Well, you know, you live in Colorado, and in the introduction to your book, you um, mention an example of a well-intentioned but failed policy that many of us living here in the West are very familiar with, and that's the U.S. Forest Service's decades-long policy of stamping out any wildfire, even if it's burning very far away from where people are living. And of course, in the midst of drought and bark beetle infestations, that has allowed for huge swaths of forest land with just a ton of dead trees, and this keeps fueling larger wildfires. That's right. And, you know, now what we're seeing is a response to that earlier policy, which I consider to be an adaptation of a 10 a.m. policy. The response to it now is we're a lot of thinning and there's thinning going on all up and down the front range. And now you're seeing communities in those in these forests who don't like the thinning, right? For one reason or another, the impact it's having on, on the local ecosystems and, and, and their communities. And so it's these, these negative downstream impacts you know, that are going to play on for, for decades. Right. Well, so in the book, you focus a lot on infrastructure and how that can go wrong in adapting to climate change. But there are also policies that have far-reaching impacts and often unintended consequences in the future. Um, what's coming to mind for me is something we depend on a lot in the West, the Colorado River. Could you talk about the impacts of policy and ideas around conserving water? Absolutely. We think about 
big infrastructure as being maladaptive, but in reality, you know, policy decisions, soft adaptations can be just as problematic. One of the obvious ones is the the 1922 Colorado River Compact, which I talk about in Over the Seawall as being, you know, I think of it as an adaptation to aridity and the issue of, of how to divvy up the, the limited water supply in the West. But it has been incredibly problematic for multiple reasons. One of the biggest ones we're realizing now, right, is that it's it committed the seven Western states in Mexico to accepting a certain amount of water from the Colorado River. And that hard line saying that this is how much water you're going to get is a terrible way to prepare for a future of uncertainty. And that's exactly what we are heading into is a future of uncertainty. And I just saw today, um, you know, KONC published an article about the Imperial Irrigation District in California being willing to use less water if the the feds pay them for what they're not going to take, you know, and that's the kind of situations we are now going to be stuck in for years to come is, you know, farmers who want to be paid for not using water when there's just not that much water to go around. Mm -hmm. And I think that it seems at least that we're becoming more aware as a society in general that some of these government-driven efforts really just shift the burden of climate change to either the future or to different classes of people, those who can't afford that burden or who maybe aren't in a position of enough power to advocate for their community. Yeah, environmental justice is definitely something that's rising, you know, in the conversation around adaptation and climate mitigation and things, um, because for so long, I think that was really just kind of ignored. You know, in the case studies that I look at in the book, Over the Seawall examines stores in Bangladesh, you know, where it's it's centuries down the line of impacts that were put into place and still affecting people today. We see the same thing happening in coastal areas where a wealthy community can afford to build a seawall, but that doesn't absorb the impact of waves, it just pushes it somewhere else. And in many cases, what that means is it pushes it down to a community that cannot afford to build a seawall. And I feel like this comes back to an idea you touch on, and it's so interesting to me. You look at policies or you look at structures like dams or canals or seawalls, and you see in that things like religion or local economies or colonialism. Could you talk about that? I did not expect colonialism to play such a large role in in over the seawall as it has. It's and it's something that has come up in every one of the stories, whether it's in Japan or Bangladesh or even central Arizona, where one group of people is being exploited for the benefit of another group of people. And this infrastructure is often put into place by the people who have the most to gain. And it's put in place so that they can continue to have the most to gain, right? And that does not necessarily mean that the people who are doing the work on the ground of either farming or generating income through garment manufacturing or something, you know, that those people aren't necessarily reaping the benefits of these things. The adaptations are often built to protect the possibility to make income, to make profit for somebody, whether it's a corporation today or, you know, a a colonial empire 200 years ago. Well, Stephen, as I mentioned at the beginning, I know Over the Seawall isn't that kind of book, but I am wondering if you've written about or are planning to write about climate change solutions. What do you what do you see as the way we can actually? That's the big question. Everybody, everybody wants to know what's the solution? What's the solution? I know. Um, we can't help it. We're just hardwired to ask that. I know. It's interesting. Um I do talk about solutions in the book, and one of the great ones that I think comes out of the Bangladesh section. And it's great because it's place specific it it arises from the people who have lived in this area and this really fascinating uh, part of the world geographically hydrologically fascinating part of the world and 
people who have had to live on a land built by floods and you know, a big mud plain that's just ravaged by cyclones and, and monsoons every year, they've learned to live with flooding. Um, they have all these different names for floods, different kinds of floods. You know, they don't just see it as one big evil flood. They see all these different ways that you can work with floods and, and build your lives around floods and actually benefit from them. And that knowledge was almost erased by years of colonialism, you know, um, and it still exists there today. And there's a new push to kind of to bring that knowledge into the forefront and use it to help people there adapt to climate change by using this kind of indigenous knowledge. And I think to me, that's a great example of the way we should just the, the structure, I think that we should be building our adaptation decisions around all over the world, not that specific idea, right? Because the whole thing is this all this idea would only work in this one place with this group of people. But that is so important. That's how we should be thinking about adaptation globally. Right. Well, Over the Seawall, such a fascinating book. Stephen Robert Miller, thank you so much for joining me today. Aaron, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. That's it for us today here on In the NoCo. We'll be back with you on Tuesday with more of what's happening in Northern Colorado. Our theme music was composed by Colorado artist Robbie Reverb. Our interim producer is Mickey Capper. Robin Vincent is our executive producer. I'm your host, Erin O'Toole. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great weekend.